Hey, Navin. Really appreciate you joining me today. Um, you know, we were talking before this around the importance of increasing data-driven decision-making. And we were just talking about, you know, your current setup where you have a, a data team and then your own team. I'd love to maybe one break down that, that, that divergence between a specific data team and then your own revenue operations team. Yeah, sounds good. And thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, yeah, two different teams doing two different things with a lot of overlap. I, I'd say the data team, their responsibility or their call to arms is really around curating the data from many system sources of which, you know, I may play a part of within the RevOps side, um, but from all other areas of product, of marketing, financial systems, et cetera, so that there's a playground for the rest of us to, to leverage and use. And it sort of democratizes data in a single place for us to then go and look at from an understanding of how do we want to pull insight or, or trend or analysis from. Um, so their responsibility is like making sure it's all there, it's available, it's reliable, and um, it, I can leverage it um, when I need to. The RevOps side of it is more focused with respect to what's happening in our go-to-market organization. We understand the players, we understand the playing field, and we set the rules around the process. And from that, we're able to curate insight and analysis that leads to actionable strategy. That's awesome. I want to run a statement by you. Tell me a little bit, uh, I will get your reaction to it. So I teach the sales ops masterclass uh, in partnership with the RevOps community. And in one of the lectures, I talk about the concept of a single source of truth. I think a lot of us talk about single source of truth, but it's not necessarily something that's really well known. So this is my definition. The practice of structuring information models and associated data schemas such that every data element is mastered or edited in only one place, providing data normalization to a canonical form. And so I bold typically in the definition four pieces, information models, data element in only one place and canonical form. I just want to kind of feel a reaction to that. Um, sounds like my data team speaking to me with respect to why things break down when they try to ingest data because they don't fit one of those four key variables that you mentioned. And I think that's the problem in a lot of the go-to-market stacks today is there's a lot of data that's siloed and it has to be transformed in a way that it can be used and then stored in a place where it can be queried. And a lot of companies, they haven't figured that out. They don't have the pipelines, the structure. They don't have the process alignment to capture, cleanse, normalize, and as a result, you have a number of people probably thinking different things because their data is telling them different things. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but uh, your data team and I were just hanging out beforehand and just prepping for, for this conversation, so absolutely. Um, so if your data team is really setting up your infrastructure, um, is your, you know, do you have a culture of a DIY where your business analysts are kind of logging into the console or their BI tools and being able to grab the data they need? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say we, we have, my team, we have no part in shaping the data with respect to, you know, where it lives in the source system. Uh, well, in the source system <clears throat> for the part we play, yes. But once it's down into our data lake, it's there for it to be normalized, to fit the constructs that are built by that engineering team so that it can be used by all parties. So um, I guess, we're sort of the users. We, we turn into like the providers 
we contribute to an ecosystem where we then become the users because the data is then commingled with data from other sources that allow us to get more of a robust end-to-end picture of what's happening in our business. Yeah, real talk. I mean, I remember when I was at Google, uh, we had this master data set where if you had the right access, you can query anything and really answer all sorts of nuanced questions. I'm curious, you know, from a RevOps perspective, um, what's some of the most interesting problem sets that you've, you know, you were uh, kind of tasked with and that you've kind of solved through recently? I'd say a big one relative to our business, like we're a, we're a bit of product-led growth, right? We we have a product that customers can sign up for on their own and never talk to a human, become customers and grow to really large customers and never talk to a human. So really understanding the curves around, you know, how that business is performing and when is the right time to inject a sales motion is critical for growth. Um, I'd say understanding that business and, and to a point where, you can get data that's trusted. I think in our data set, the, the biggest challenge over time has been at what point have we re- have we achieved stable data where we can start to trust trend analysis? And for a while, that was difficult. It was choppy. But then you get to that point of not nirvana, but almost like, okay, we've got six months of good data. We've got a year of good data. We can now start to understand our business and plan for what it might be and then look at like specific places where we've injected a new motion, a new product, a new sales team, a new growth lever, and see how that you know actually changes the curve, and then double down on those things that are actually working. So then uh, tell me a little bit about your team, right? So uh, you're a leader of revenue operations. Um, tell me a little bit about the team and the skill sets you have uh, kind of built into the squad dev. Yeah, we've. I, I like to um, articulate the team as functioning in three pillars, if you would like. Um, We've got a systems team. We've got sort of your traditional RevOps team with the deal desk function. And then we've got like an insights team that I'm building out. Um, I love sports. So the analogy I love to use is, you know, we build the playing field. We set the rules on how the game is going to be conducted. And then we call the play by play. And that's basically how the team is set up and how it's built. Like, we put the systems together, we manage the integrations, we make sure all that data is like working in a place and our place obviously is our CRM. We then make sure we are adhering to the rules, like who does what, when, territories, how we book deals, when it counts, when it doesn't, et cetera. And then we look at all those two things and then we we sort of do the postmortem and or the projection. Here's how it went in the last month. Here's where we won. Here's where we learned. And then, you know, here's what we kind of need to prioritize and do as we grow. Okay, so you've got a lot of different moving parts on your team. When you think about career progression for your team members, um, you probably have folks who are specialists, some folks who are generalists. You know, how are you currently thinking about constructing the team and levels and kind of career pathing for the organization? Big challenge. I think um, two years ago when I got here, there wasn't a team. Like the function didn't exist. So the team was built out of need. I need someone to own this area. I need someone to, to like run this part. And then uh, over time, you start to grow the team. So we're a team of like 19 people now. And you now, you now need to start thinking about, you know, career progression, elevation, and opportunities around the team. Um, and it's critical. And you, you want to be able to build a team where people think that through their contributions and their effort and their results, they have an opportunity to improve and grow. Um, I look at it from, you know, 
I guess traditionally, how, what's the contribution of the individual? And, you know, can I work with my HR partners to develop sort of a, not a strategy, but like a framework by which people can sort of elevate and move into different roles and continue to, to be high performers in the function? That's amazing. So I always think of uh, maybe two levels. One is the kind of goal of the company and the department in the form of the OKRs, uh, if you use that framework. Some other folks might use different frameworks from there. And then a personal development plan. I always think that's somewhat uh, custom and personal to each individual, where they want to go. Here's where they are. Here's where they want to go. In between is that gap. And then what can I do as a leader to help kind of close those gaps across the org? And I typically have worked with with startups. And I found that I've had to hire generalists uh, in the beginning because the generalists have to be these five tool players to use another sports analogy someone that can cover first base and second base and third base at different times. And then over time, start filling in with those kind of deep specialists. And I find that the career path conversations are different when you move from you know one company stage to, an, to another, right? So the person that wants to be a generalist, they may not want to convert to a specialist. And so I run the risk of you know some employee churn because you know the organization needs specialists as, a someone, as opposed to someone who's a generalist. Um, so I always struggle with that personally, I don't think there's ever a, you know, quote unquote, right answer, but I'd love the idea of, um, you know, coaching, progressing my people. And if they choose to leave, to pursue you know, something along the lines of what they wish, um, you know, no feelings hurt, but, um, you know, really just an opportunity to see how I can try to retain those employees for as long as possible. It, it's really challenging to be like to start up a RevOps function and have a team of specialists. It's just, it's not scalable. Um, and my way of doing that was like, let's, let's find a bunch of folks who have that like five tools, right. And who can spread across. And then over top of that, I'm going to be the glue. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get in there as well, both from my understanding of how the team is performing. Are we delivering value to our customers who are the GTM org? And then ultimately a, a more unique understanding of where I have gaps so that when I do start to specialize, I know the slots I need to fill. So I'd love to walk through kind of the different departments that you support. Um, let's just start with the basics, marketing, sales, CS. And you mentioned the strong PLG component. Um, is product also involved with you as a stakeholder? Yeah. So, I mean, I've led sales and marketing ops functions. I was pretty keen on making sure when I got here, that we didn't call it sales ops. We call it rev ops. And not not because it's a cache name, but it's it's fundamentally what I believe. I believe that my function exists to support our company goals around revenue. And I can't do that if I'm just carving territory and managing a sales team. I need to understand customer success ops. I need to understand partner ops. Um, I, need to, I, need, I need room to move in those areas so that I can move the needle forward. Um, in my function today, marketing ops lives with the marketing team. Product ops lives on the product side, but we have very close relationships with how we work. It's absolutely essential. Like those lanes of communication need to be wide open for a PLG motion to even consider to be working. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit. I think you have to solve through that with a lot of operating cadences that interlock between your different groups. And you've got a bit of a hybrid nature to the different stakeholders that you're supporting. Uh, but I want to turn the attention to the PLG side. You know, what's been the most interesting or surprisingly challenging piece of managing a PLG driven business as a revenue operator? Yeah, I think I think there's a collision of 
every lead needs to be touched right away versus leads who come in on the PLG motion, maybe you need to back off a little bit. I liken it to, you know, back in the days, you know, we had a retail outfit out here that, you know, since went out of business, but similar to Best Buy, but they were the opposite. As soon as I walked in the door, they were on me. Like they had sized me up in the parking lot and they were on me the minute I got in there and on me until the minute I left. And I usually dreaded going in there because I just wanted to look around. I just wanted to touch the thing and like see how it works. And then, then lo and behold comes Best Buy. They let you know they're here, then they let me roam. And they're available when I have a question, but they, they're not on me. And that's the PLG motion in my mind. And how to marry that into the sales motion that lives in the MQL world, that's key. If you can figure that motion out, and if you could be there right time, right place, you know, your company on, on, on an amazing path. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm a bit of a shy shopper myself. I'm a strong extrovert personality wise, but as soon as I walk in a store and an associate walks with me, like, hey, can I help you today? I'm like, I was just walking in. I really didn't expect you to come up to me and approach me. And now I feel kind of, I feel kind of shy. I'm just going to run away uh, yeah. from the associate. Um, it makes perfect sense. Um, so I don't know if you've subscribed or read, um, uh, Kyle Poyar's um, LinkedIn posts or his um, his Substack, but he talks a lot about PLG conditions, and you know he has kind of these these eight or nine conditions that I think I, I personally use for you know different folks who ask me, you, th you think a PLG motion is is right for my business? He's like, you know, it's not for everyone. You know, there are certain conditions where PLG makes a lot of sense. So, for example, PLG can disaggregate a piece of your go to market motion. So for example, it can take over the awareness or the acquisition piece. Uh, it could also take over maybe the training, the adoption enablement piece. If you can do end to end, that's fantastic. That means you have a really strong PLG candidate, but if it only, you know, takes a subset of your go-to-market piece, then you really only have um, a segment of your go-to-market that can be quote unquote PLG. So for example, a halfway measure would be a product that signs up. And then hopefully the growth team or the sales team waits a little bit. They kick some dust in your application. They're creating records, maybe adding other folks to it. And then when you have, they hit this like threshold, kind of like an MQL score, PQL score of some sort, that's when the team gets involved and approaches and says, hey, I've noticed that you've started to use our application. I want to show you some other features or maybe show you some tips and tricks that you've missed. Uh, I'm curious to see, you know, how that PLG is involved. Uh, on your end, you know, as you've seen more and more pieces that go to market move towards the product as opposed to having physical individuals involved. Yeah, you're describing the aha moment, right? The moment by where the person who signed up realized, ah, I can see how this works for me or my business or my team or my, my department or my company. Um, yeah, it, it's it's an evolution. I think, the, you know, the one password business has grown from a PLG. We were a B2C business from our inception up until maybe five or six years ago. And then we bolted on the B2B motion. And what we've worked on continually since is improving that experience from a sign up to a paid customer, and then finding the right time at which to inject a sales motion to Sherpa them to a path where they can, you know, unlock more value, um, increase adoption or spread more awareness viral through viral nature within their org to, you know, to further adopt and grow. Yeah, that's amazing. So then I, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, capacity planning and resource allocation. How many 
you know, big strategic projects are each of your sub teams taking on per quarter. Uh, I can imagine the business moving a million miles a minute. You know, what, what do you say is, you know, we're going to fund this with our resources that we have, or, you know, this is, this is going to go below the line, but it can go above the line. If we, you know, go acquire more resources or tools, some sort of capacity augmentation. I'm curious how, how you're thinking about your, your team. Yeah, we, 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 we subscribe to the OKR model here as a company. So at the beginning of the year, I'll have a mandate and I'll know like, okay, this is what I'm signing up for. And these things are critical. These are like my midterm things. And then these are the nice to haves. And we build a team resourcing budgets around those things. And then we try and find some buffer because things always go sideways. There's always an opportunity for trade-offs, things happen. And we try and manage those things because those those that's how I'm going to be measured uh, as a leader of this function is, can I deliver on the things uh, I said I would, right? Do what you say, say what you do. And it, it's tough because there's a lot of times where I got to say no. And um, I have to do it in a way that people mm -hmm. understand the context behind it. Because, you know, the thing you want is not the thing that I've been chartered to go and deliver on. And when we can't find agreement, then we have to determine what are, what are those trade-offs, right? If I'm not going to do the thing for person A that, and I'm going to do for person B, you know, what is the impact of the business? And as a company, does that make, you know, is that the right, does that make, does that math work for us? And ultimately, you know, it comes down to a number. My decisions are based on numbers. And that's sort of the trade-off that um, I, I manage and the, the line that I have to walk. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we think about those balancing priorities and as a leader, um, you think about your career and learning how to say no while still maintaining and developing those relationships, strengthening them. I always think that saying no is not something that is a negative against any relationship. I think a lot of folks can think that if I don't deliver on this, you know, my reputation as a revenue operator is at stake. I don't think that's always true. I think your your stakeholders actually respect you quite a bit more if you're thinking about the business first and your capacity and your team's capacity is what ultimately unlocks that productivity. So just thinking back to an earlier version of yourself, you know, what do you wish you knew, you know, what, what do you wish you knew back uh, know now, but apply it to back then when you, early in your career? Uh, the power of no definitely uh, would be thing one. And setting expectations, thing two, and how to measure success, thing three. I would say the power of no, you can't say yes to everyone because immediately you're setting yourself up to failure. And you have to have the, both the confidence in yourself, your team, and from your leadership for them to understand why no makes sense because it, it unlocks the yes, the things you can do. Um, I'll, I'll come to the last one, which... Oh man, I've already forgotten it because I love the first two. Um, the last one I think was around um, measures of success. And I learned that pretty early on when trying to you know, advocate for, hey, we got to go do CPQ because our product SKUs are a mess. It's difficult to understand revenue and how it feeds other source systems. And we're a subscription business. We need a way of managing and amending and upselling subscriptions. How are you going to measure success? I just thought I was really just centered on like the thing I got to go do. And I was sold on like the grandiose vision at the time it was steel brick and thank God I made that decision. Um, but I, it made me pause. It made me go back to like, okay, I need to chunk this thing out. It's a huge project. What's phase one going to look like? What's my MVP and what's the measure of success that allow me to unlock phase two. 
those were things that I really understood to like, okay, yeah, I, I really need to think about that. Uh, I'm going to think the middle one was expectations. Expectations and then how they evolve and change and keeping our leadership abreast of those things. It's okay to be late sometimes. It's okay to like deviate or change the plan. You just got to make sure everyone else is on board and they're aware and it's not a surprise and they know it. Um, the shock and awe of a decision is what turns people sour. And if you're letting people know like, this is where we're headed, this is the trajectory of both the project, the numbers, the forecast, they saw the writing on the wall. They, they, could, they could get to that answer. But when you surprise people, good or bad, that's when people think differently about you. So no surprises is what I'm hearing. Hey, Naveen, this has been an amazing conversation. As always, you and I always have such a good time talking to each other. Uh, where can the listeners find out more about you? Um, I'm not avid on, I'm not active on social media, but I'm a hawk on LinkedIn. Um, if I see things I truly like, I post it. I don't post a whole lot, but I do like to engage in commentary. It's just time in the day. It just kind of sucks. Find me on, on LinkedIn, check out one password. Uh, we're a great product. We, we help secure your digital life in all aspects and, uh, you know, let's connect. Um, and you know, definitely I know the community is small. I know RevOps is hot. And I feel like there's an opportunity where I may not know you directly, but I know someone you know. Absolutely. Thanks again, Evan. Take care.